Welcome to the CLA's podcast series, Rural Business Uncovered. In this series, we will review in detail the key issues facing landowners and rural businesses today. For example, you will hear about how rural tourism has found innovative ways to deal with the COVID crisis, farm diversification through the eyes of a CLA member and how they did it, what the future of food looks like and much more. The Country Land and Business Association are the only organisation dedicated to protecting and defending the rights of landowners and rural businesses. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Rural Business Uncovered, brought to you by the CLA, where each week we discuss matters affecting the rural sector. The Country Land and Business Association are the only organisation dedicated to protecting and defending the rights of landowners and rural businesses. Part one last week focused on trees, but this week's topic is peatland. Occupying 12% of the UK's land area, the carbon-rich upland and lowland peatlands of the UK are a significant advantage for the UK in the fight against climate change, currently storing 20 times as much carbon as the UK's forests. However, much of the UK's peatland is in a degraded state, and options must be looked at to start restoring these valuable and natural habitats. There are three types of peatland in the UK. Blanket bog, largely found in the uplands, raised bog and fens in the lowlands. While all are technically peat, the different geography, geology and hydrology mean they must all be dealt with in a vastly different way. In this podcast, we will hear from Joe Finlow from the Fens for the Future and Alice Ritchie, Land Use Policy Advisor and Climate Change Lead for the CLA to talk about the different considerations for upland and lowland peat and how each can play its role in fighting climate change. So welcome both to the podcast. Uh, And to start, could you kindly introduce Yourselves. Sure, thank you, Alad. Yeah, I'm Alice, and as you said, I am the climate change lead for the CLA. The biggest asset, I think, that a lot of our CLA members have in the fight against the climate crisis is nature and nature-based solutions uh, like peatland and like forestry. So I'm working really closely at the moment with some of our members who own or manage peatland to find ways that we can ensure we're looking after these really important habitats and helping them sequester and store carbon. Uh, This also at the moment includes working closely with the government on their upcoming England peat strategy. So yeah, a really important area at the moment, I think. Thank you, Alice. And Joe, tell us a bit about your background. I'm representing Fens for the Future Partnership, and we are focused on the lowland fens of East Anglia. And this basically cover the fens across Lincolnshire, Cambridgeshire, Norfolk and Suffolk. And we have a a range of depths of uh, peat across the whole area. The Fence for the Future Partnership has been in existence in one form or another since the early 1990s. We're made up of um, public and private and voluntary sector organisations. 
whose broad aim is to further the development of a partnership approach to sustainable landscape conservation of the Fenland. Thank you to both of you for, for joining uh, this podcast on what is a very important topic of PEATS. But Joe, if I can t- turn to you now, and can you explain to us what exactly is PEAT and why are peatlands so important for climate change? So I am not a scientist or anybody that can go in depth here, but essentially it is dead plant material. It's organic material, particularly from things like sphagnum moss, which is crucial. Sphagnum is a very interesting piece of organic material. Uh, It grows continually upwards and the peat is basically things like sphagnum moss, which has died and is basically being stored in an organic state because of the wet environment. And um, when it dries out, that that organic mass starts to blow away. And so the second part of my question was, why are peatlands important for climate change? They're, they're important uh, in two key ways. At the moment, because they're so degraded, they are actually contributing to the gas emissions, the uh, rise in temperature to cause climate change. If we can improve uh, and restore the functionality of the peatlands, then we will actually be using them as uh, a means to mitigate the effects of climate change. If the peat is in a a good function, a good healthy state, then it will be locking in and holding in that carbon that is already there and will actively start storing new carbon. If it is wet and healthy, it is actually reducing the emissions from its surface area. Uh, And also if it's kept uh, healthy and wet, then it uh, it actually has a cooling effect. And if it is kept covered by vegetation, then that again will actually reduce the erosion and the evaporation of the water. That's where it's important to climate change. But also because of the effects of climate change, we're going to be looking at periods of drought and flooding, so extreme weather, and the peatlands will be useful there. A, to store water, and B, to control and help to manage extreme flood events when they occur. And Alice, I mentioned right at the beginning in my introduction that uh, peatlands have been degraded. What's caused that damage over the years? Well, there's a lot of different reasons, really, and it does depend quite a lot on whether it's upland or lowland peat. Uh, But for the most part, much of our peatland, particularly in the lowlands, is really highly productive agricultural land that has been drained uh, and then used for agriculture over the last, well, centuries, I think. Um, And in in the upland areas, in some some places, uh, non-peat-forming vegetation has been allowed to grow or it's been... Uh, overdrained, eroded, overgrazed by livestock, or planted up in things like trees, or it's been left bare. So all of these different management practices um, or different ways of using the land have, in some instances, caused it to degrade, which is a real shame. And have you seen that, Joe, in, in the fens? Certain practices have led to, to quite severe damage in some instances. Uh, yes, it's very obvious within the landscape because of the drainage that took place in the 17th century to actually uncover the, the soil because it's very productive and good growing um, situation because it's flat. You don't have to worry about hills and dales. You can see there's a very well-known landmark called the Home Post and um, it's a stake, a nine um, post that was driven into the ground at a particular time and you can see how it's been uncovered by the peat shrinking as it dries out 
And if you're standing um, in a field when the wind's blowing uh, on a good day uh, across the fens, you actually can't see um, the landscape or the horizon because there's usually something called a fen blow, which is basically where the wind is blowing all the dry peat off the land and taking it away. And again, this soil erosion means, A, um, we won't have much peat left to even think about growing anything in it. Uh, and obviously it's uh, helping exacerbate the climate change issue. So I guess you want to prevent the, the peat from becoming too dry. But then again, some farmers and landowners who are looking to work the land might want, want it drained. So how do you balance those two objectives? Uh, very carefully. That, that's not meant to be flippant at all. But it, it, it's got to be a joint effort between everybody. We still need food production. There are still good pockets of peat there, which areas of land that can be used. But we have to work out how we can do that to minimise the loss of the peat and to keep it as wet as possible. And that means actually looking at how we farm at the moment and how can we adapt those methods to meet the needs of both the, the peat and the food production. Now, Alice, uh, what, what about the uplands? Would you say that the same challenges exist there in terms of trying to balance um, where and how livestock graze peatlands in a way that can maintain its productive capacity in producing food, but also optimise its carbon storage qualities? Yeah, there's some quite different considerations, I think, between the uplands and the lowlands. But equally, they, they do, they are used for different types of land uses and are really, really valuable landscapes for, again, different reasons. When we're talking about the uplands, we're usually thinking of the mountains and the valleys and the, the moors and the hills. They cover about a third of the UK, I think, um, plenty in Scotland and Wales, but also lots in England. And much of it is in national parks or areas of outstanding natural beauty. So there's a huge tourism element to uh, these areas. I think there were... There's about 40 million visitors to England's national parks every year, England's upland national parks every year, and they spend nearly £2 billion. So these industries need to be supported, not just when we're talking uh, about farming or, or livestock grazing and things. There's also a really valuable landscape and tourism aspect to these areas. So it'll be about finding ways to make sure that when people are there, they're treating the landscape with respect and not... Um, you know, having barbecues and things like that and potentially starting wildfires, but making sure that we're using that using that land in a way that can continue to store carbon. And in some cases, that will be about keeping livestock there. Much of that land needs a certain number of livestock to keep the habitats healthy and keep the ecosystems working. So it'll be about making sure that there's a balance between using the land uh, in a productive way in a way that supports ecosystems, but also in a way that allows us to continue storing carbon in these areas. The uplands definitely doesn't currently emit as much carbon as the lowlands because of the, the different way that it's used. So a, a big part of it will be making sure we're conserving what's already there and slowly improving. And how would you um, describe the, the upland habitats and, and why are they so unique? The uplands are such unique habitats and they're home to an absolutely incredible diversity of different species, particularly things like uh, dragonflies, 25 of the UK's 38 species are found in the uplands. Um, and then there's also a huge number of different birds. So they're really important for breeding wading birds like golden plovers, red shanks, curlews. I'm not quite sure if that's how you say it. Um, and yeah, also red grouse and some natural predator, predators as well. So they're really important habitats for all those different types of species. 
And uh, what about the, the Fens, uh, Joe? What makes the Fenland so unique? Well, it's very distinctive, partly because of its what remains of the, the natural landscape and the fact that it has been shaped by man as well. It's large scale, it's flat, it has an open landscape with extensive visitors. Some people can say that's flat and boring, but actually it can convey a strong sense of place, tranquility and inspiration. Its landscape is characterised by many drainage ditches, dikes and rivers, and it's all low-lying. So apart from a small part of it, which reaches above uh, 20 metres above sea level, for example, the Isle of Ely, the elevations are rarely above the 10 metre contour. And so the whole of the area relies on this pumping system to keep it dryish and uh, allow the land to be used. And what are the different land uses you'll find there? Agriculture is the key sector that uses the land, but uh, it is also very famous internationally so for its history and its archaeology. There's some international sites there and recently the most well-known one is Must Farm for the Bronze Age settlements, the roundhouses that were found. Yeah, it must be incredible to see how well preserved those items were. And and looking forward, how do you um, advise landowners or guide them on how they can restore some people and what can they do? Because this is highly productive agricultural land, uh, which which requires a degree of of management ability th- through through drainage. But but yet again, you want to try and and maintain the wet nature of that peat for the benefits that you've explained. What are the operations they can they can do on the land? No, no one solution will work. No, there, there isn't one option that will work for everybody. And it is very much about communication and conversation between all the people, agencies involved who manage an area of land to work out how and what can be done. On every farm, for, um, there is likely to be a small area which is actually already too wet to be able to do anything with um, financially, which is financially viable or productive. And so that could actually be actively allowed to become wild, to look at whether there's a few more Fenland plants that could be introduced, which will increase the quality of the habitat and improve the biodiversity in it. Or if it's something that could be used to still grow something but it's wet then a possibility is to look at the potential of paludi crops these are basically plant crops that would grow in wetter peat soil or it could be just as simple as looking at your your boundaries could a hedgerow be put in to stop the soil erosion capture that soil when it blows across or have you got hedgerows which you're usually very regularly trim uh, but you could sort of let them go a little bit or manage them to trim at different times, which will allow the biodiversity to increase. I mean, a lot of this will be familiar to farmers and a lot of them are already doing this. But there may be some people that uh, things that the situation we're in hasn't yet caused them to think about what could they do and contribute. There, there are also the... Um, no-till options for farming uh, or the nature-friendly options. But it is about, first of all, reviewing what you have, what you could do, what options and opportunities there are 
and then taking steps to start acting on those uh, on that review. And what about incentives through agri-environment schemes? C- can they help? They, they could help, but um, as we're well aware, the agri-environment scheme that's going to be coming potentially coming forward to replace um, the, the ones that are at the moment, uh, which will be coming to an end, uh, that will not come on stream for quite a while yet. And we cannot afford to wait for those incentives, those monetary incentives to take place. We ought to be, be motivated uh, and incentivized, if that's the right word, by the fact that if we don't do something, we possibly won't have any nature left to actually try and get some money to do something with anyway. We have to do it now and we cannot wait for financial incentives down the line from the government. We just have to look at it now and see what we can do. And Alice, uh, did you agree with that? Do you think landowners need to act now? Yeah, definitely. I think it's really important that we start making sure that as a starting point, we're not degrading these landscapes further because that's going to mean we've got even further to go when we start restoring them. Uh, But I do think what's quite interesting when we look at the environmental land management scheme that is coming down the track, it's split at the moment. The way that they're looking at it is in different tiers. In tier one, it is uh, focused on on on-farm type measures that can help reduce carbon emissions and um, also look at a a lot of other different public goods. And then tier three is focused on really big landscape level changes, including wide scale restoration of peatland. But what I find quite interesting when you look at it is that a lot of those low carbon farming measures that kind of apply across the board, no matter whether you're farming on peatland or not, will also help conserve peatland. So a lot of what Joe was talking about in terms of cover crops and mintel and that kind of thing will be incentivised across the entire country, across all of England and Wales. So that's hopefully going to help with peatland, although Joe's right, we do need, it does need to start happening now and not later in the future. But those are measures that can help uh, reduce our reliance on artificial fertilisers too. And they often are things that help the farmer's bottom line as well. So what I'm hoping is that through uh, an increasing amount of knowledge and advice on these type of measures and maybe by undertaking um, carbon accounts and things like that, CLA members and also other farmers and landowners can start thinking about how they use these measures and how they change the way they use land and change their agricultural practices to improve all types of land, not just peat. And then in the longer term, we can start thinking about how we incentivize that big landscape level change um, to restore large tracts of peatland. I know the Committee on Climate Change has huge targets for peatland restoration, um, particularly upland. They're looking to restore for climate change reasons, reasons, they think we need to be restoring 50 to 75% of the uplands, which is a big task, a huge task, um, but arguably a little bit more achievable than wide-scale restoration of lowland peat, only because it's a wee bit cheaper, I think, and also you're not going to have to sacrifice that highly productive agricultural land. If we stop producing food on the fens or on lowland peat, we're going to need potentially twice as much land in other areas of the country to produce the same amount of food. And those other areas might be better used for other carbon storage land uses like tree planting. 
So it's really important that when we're looking at any type of restoration of peat, we take quite a holistic view and look at it from a sort of landscape level, UK-wide climate change perspective. And Joe, what's your thoughts about that? I agree with what Alice is saying, that there is this um, dilemma um, on the, with the lowland fens that it is a productive area. People still need food, will st- still need food. And uh, the situation we are in at the moment uh, has just highlighted how much, how vulnerable the uh, food supply chain is and uh, the whole issue of food security. So trying to suggest uh, taking land away from agriculture to uh, or to alternative crops that are not food crops uh, you you are just shifting the the, the issue aside. You, you're just pushing it away to have to sort it out somewhere else further down the line or or sideways. And uh, that that's not the answer. We we have to look at everything uh, as Alice has said in a holistic way. Review it. Work out where the best gains can be made uh, with the least painful compromises, uh, and move forward. It's all about striking that that right balance. And uh, we've talked about the measures that that can be introduced to try and restore peatland in the lowlands. But but Alice, I want to pick up on what are the measures that that can be introduced uh, to restore upland peatlands? And are they different? They are quite different, mainly because of the different ways that the land is used. And quite similar to what Joe was saying about picking and choosing areas of, of land to start taking action on, there'll be areas of upland peach that make sense to sort of keep doing what we're currently doing. But there might be other areas where we can start re-wetting them or making sure that they are providing good drinking water quality. We often talk about making sure that water companies 
are thinking about restoring the peatland that that they own or manage, particularly as Upland Peat provides headwaters for about 70% of our drinking water. So there's a lot of different actions that can be taking, taken, but part of it will just be managing it in a, in a slightly different way, depending on the different area and you know, what's feasible. In a lot of places, it'll be about possibly reducing grazing livestock numbers up to a more acceptable state, but you also are a more acceptable level. But as part of agri-environment schemes at the moment, you do need a certain amount of livestock to maintain those landscapes. So it'll be all about finding a balance. But protecting and preserving our peatlands can produce a number of public goods. So not only does it improve biodiversity, it can absorb carbon, but it also can be put to good use in terms of flood mitigation. So it there's a number of um, good reasons whereby it justifies public support for, for landowners to do some of this work. Yeah, it definitely does. And the government's acknowledged that by creating a, an England peat strategy, which is in development at the moment. And part of that is looking at how they're going to be spending the £640 million Nature for Climate Fund. So the CLA is calling on them to use that money for sort of big big projects as a seed funding type enterprise and then finding ways to continually to, to keep finding streams of money to come in to help restoration of peat, um, which might be through things like carbon markets um, or ecosystem payment for ecosystem services and things like that. But it's definitely a good investment from the government, I think, to be putting money into peatland restoration because of that huge the raft of benefits and public goods that it provides, as you say. And it's interesting that you mentioned um, carbon trading, because that's something we talked about in the podcast around trees. Is there a market for carbon uh, that's absorbed in peatland at the moment? Yeah, there is. So similar to trees, there is a peatland code, which measures and quantifies how much carbon is stored in peatlands. And then ostensibly, you can get paid for paid for that carbon through, it's a, it's a voluntary standard, essentially, for peatland restoration projects. So that opens up peatland restoration to the private to the private sector, really, which is quite an exciting prospect, particularly as arguably peatland's a bit more of a safe bet. It's, it's harder to, can be harder to lose that carbon than it is for trees. And peatlands can, and Joe might correct me if I'm wrong here, but peatlands can absorb absorb carbon almost infinitely. They can sort of continue to keep keep absorbing more and more carbon and keeping it stored and relatively stable in those soils. So I think carbon markets will be an interesting space to watch. It's definitely not that well established yet. Um, I'm not sure if there's actually any projects in England yet that are um, using the peatland code, but I know that there's a few in Scotland and around the world. So what I'm really hoping is that it'll take off and allow landowners, for example, to access funds. So if they're taking land out of production, in order to restore the peatland, they'll have a, a steady stream of income from the carbon that's being continually stored, just like what was um, talked about in the Trees podcast. Would you say that the general awareness amongst landowners of the importance of, of peatland restoration is greater now than what it was, say, 10 years ago? Yes. Uh, an example of that is the conference that was held in Thorney in March, just before lockdown. It was probably the last conference uh, anybody really attended in this sort of uh, sector. Uh, and the, the enthusiasm and interest and awareness was uh, very tangible. Uh, the farmers were keen to want to do something. Uh, there are a number of younger farmers 
um, who were very aware of the issues. They had young families and were very conscious of the need to make sure the Fens uh, and their livelihoods were secure for the next generation. And so they were all very keen to start doing something and doing their bit to um, improve the health of the peat. And Alice, have you noticed a similar interest and level of awareness for the protection of upland peatland? Yeah, definitely. I think it's been incredibly interesting to watch how people just appreciate these landscapes so much more and realise that that England and Wales have so many unique areas that are, that are unique in terms of the entire world. You know, there's there's so many different habitats here. And I think people are reconnecting with nature in a different way at the moment and understanding how just how valuable these landscapes are and how we do need to protect them, not just for climate change or biodiversity, but just for, for all kinds of reasons, because they do provide us with so many different, well, yeah, public goods, um, but also just such beautiful, valued landscapes that we need to protect. And as a final question to both of you, what would you like to see included in future agri-environmental schemes that's going to restore and protect peatland, both in the uplands and in the lowlands? I know we've spoken about elm and uh, and in Wales, there's a sustainable farming scheme being developed. And if I could start with, with you, Joe, what would you like to see included in future schemes that's really going to make a difference? Flexibility. Uh, and a, a preparedness to listen to consider the site and situation. Uh, Agri-schemes are very prescriptive. Uh, that There's a menu that you, you, or in the past, they have been prescriptive uh, and for, have a menu that you pick from that you can do. But it, it doesn't listen to each farm uh, and what their situation is. So I'd say flexibility. Thank you, Joe. And what about you, what about you, Alice? I think what we're going to need to see, just as Joe said, is flexibility and an opportunity for people to both use their land productively but also restore it. But in terms of agri-environment schemes, what I think we really, really need is government funding that opens up private sector markets so that we can we know that for climate change targets it's go, they're going to be really difficult to meet without getting as many sources of funding involved as we can so i think it's important that these agri-environment schemes work in conjunction with other streams of funding so that landowners and farmers can can use their land in a way that uh, restores it while making sure that it's still productive well, it's clear from our discussion that the protection and restoration of our peatlands is going to play a vital role in uh, in our effort to combat climate change. And it's going to be very important in our transition as well to a low carbon economy. Joe and Alice, thank you once again for joining us on this podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much, Alan. If you're not a member of the CLA, you can join today. More information can be found on our website, www.cla.org.uk. Thank you for listening, and I hope you can join us again soon. You've been listening to the Rural Business Uncovered podcast, the CLA's new weekly podcast released every Friday. You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or just search Rural Business Uncovered on your chosen podcast provider. Remember to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss an episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 